0: Hey guys, what's going on? This is Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, bringing you Episode 8 in the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. We're going to begin where we left off last week, covering more causes of abdominal pain that are high yield for your examination. Alright, let's talk about acute mesenteric ischemia. So, the way this will be presented on the exam to you is an older patient coming in with pain out of proportion to her physical examination. Typically, this patient will have a history of AFib, or they will have had a recent embolectomy. Both of these scenarios would predispose the patient to arterial embolic events. Now, what is the gold standard diagnostic test for acute mesenteric ischemia? Good, mesenteric angiography is the gold standard test and will be the correct answer on your exam. Now let's say the next patient comes in and they're complaining of abdominal bloating and distension and on and off abdominal pain and their last bowel movement was like eight days ago. This scenario is concerning for a bowel obstruction. Now if this pain is very severe or if they're peritonitic on exam, what diagnostic test do you want to order first? So this would be an upright chest x-ray to look for free air under the diaphragm. If you see free air under the diaphragm, this is a perforated bowel until proven otherwise. You need to know what this looks like on x-ray for your exam. And in the other scenario where their pain isn't super severe and they're not peritonitic. What diagnostic test do you want to order? Good. So for the exam, the answer is going to be a CT with contrast. In real life, some people will order abdominal x-rays first and then get the CT. But on the exam, go with the CT. And let's say the scan does show an obstruction. How do you manage these patients? So you give these patients fluids you make them NPO, and you stick in an NG tube. If there's no improvement in 48 hours, then I would consult surgery. All right, let's talk about acute diverticulitis. This typically manifests as left lower quadrant pain and is usually associated with bleeding. It's the diverticulosis that is associated with the painless bleeding. How do you diagnose acute diverticulitis? So, on the exam, the answer is going to be a CT scan with both IV and oral contrast. But they might just list it as CT with contrast. Now, typically, these patients can be managed by putting them on a liquid diet and observing them for a little bit. However, If the CT scan shows any signs of a complicated acute diverticulitis, then these patients also need antibiotics. You need to cover anaerobes, and so metronidazole is usually the correct answer on the exam. Now, the things that you could see on CT scan that would indicate that you need to use antibiotics include the presence of an abscess, a stricture, a fistula, a perforation, or obstruction. However, I don't memorize this list for the exam. What I would do is just keep in mind if their acute diverticulitis is complicated or seems very severe, use antibiotics. Alright, moving on. What is the best initial test to diagnose an abdominal aortic aneurysm and what exactly are you looking for when you do that test? So. An abdominal ultrasound is very sensitive for detecting these AAAs. And what you're looking for is a vessel diameter greater than 3 centimeters. When you are trying to diagnose spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, what is the cell count that you are looking for on paracentesis? Good. So you would treat for SBP if there is a cell count of greater than or equal to 250 cells. Now, what would you treat SBP with? So obviously, these patients need antibiotics. You give them ceftriaxone. When it comes to kidney stones on your exam, generally, you can diagnose this with a CT without contrast. You can do a renal ultrasound. If they've been having reoccurring stones and you don't want to give them the extra bolus of radiation, however, usually on the exam, the answer is a CT non-contrast. Now, if the stone is less than 5 millimeters, generally, you manage these patients with pain control and tamsulosin. If the stone is 5 millimeters or greater, this is generally a urology consult. While we're on the topic of kidneys, there are five indications for emergent dialysis that you need to know for your exam. There is a great mnemonic to remember these indications, A-E-I-O-U, all the vowels. A stands for acidosis, so a pH less than 7.1. E stands for electrolytes, representing hyperkalemia greater than 6.5 that has been refractory to treatment. I stands for intoxication, mainly lithium, ethylene glycol, methanol, and aspirin. O stands for overload of volume that is not responsive to diuretics. And U stands for uremia that is symptomatic, such as uremic pericarditis or uremic encephalopathy. Alright, moving on. Let's talk about the workup for ectopic pregnancy. Generally, the vignette will start by giving you a positive pregnancy test. However, the first thing you need to order is a quantitative beta-HCG level. The pregnancy tests that are often used for screening in the ED are qualitative, but you need to get an absolute number on their beta-HCG levels. After that, you do an abdominal ultrasound to look for an intrauterine pregnancy. If no intrauterine pregnancy is visualized with the abdominal ultrasound, then you move on to a transvaginal ultrasound. In both cases, you're looking for the presence of an intrauterine pregnancy. Now, the exam might test you on what exactly defines an intrauterine pregnancy on ultrasound. To make this call, you need to see a yolk sac contained within a gestational sac within the endometrium of the uterus. I'll say that again, you need to see a gestational sac that contains a yolk sac. If you do visualize an intrauterine pregnancy, then for exam purposes, you have essentially ruled out ectopic pregnancy. Now in real life, this is not true at all because you can have what is known as a heterotopic pregnancy, which means you have one intrauterine pregnancy and one or more ectopic pregnancies. This is especially true for patients who have received in vitro fertilization. But for exam purposes, the presence of an intrauterine pregnancy rules out ectopic pregnancy. Now, if no intrauterine pregnancy was able to be visualized on ultrasound, then the management is dependent on that quantitative beta HCG level. If that level is less than 1,500 with no intrauterine pregnancy, then you can send this patient home assuming they're stable and have them follow up for a repeat beta HCG level in 48 hours. However, if this level is greater than 1500 without an intrauterine pregnancy, this is an ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise and you need to call ob Now, for the exam, most questions will focus on this workup for ectopic pregnancy. However, if they're not asking for the next step in management, one thing that you need to consider is that all of these moms need to get a type in screen to determine their RH status. If they are RH negative, they get prophylactic rogam in order to prevent complications down the line. So to recap all of this, you start off with a quantitative beta-HCG level. Regardless of that level, You ultrasound the patient, starting with an abdominal ultrasound and moving to a transvaginal ultrasound if the intrauterine pregnancy is not visualized on abdominal ultrasound. If at any point you visualize an intrauterine pregnancy on ultrasound, for exam purposes you are done. If you do not visualize an intrauterine pregnancy with the transvaginal ultrasound, then the management comes down to the beta-HCG level. Less than 1,500, and you send the patient home with follow-up to repeat that level in 48 hours. Greater than 1,500 is an ectopic pregnancy until proven otherwise, and you need to call ob And I think that just about wraps up this week's episode. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or questions regarding the content, please email me. My email is empodcastmike at gmail.com. Until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.